Hello and welcome to Warwick Business School's Core Insights podcast with me, Audrey Diaz. Today, our attention turns to strategy in a post-COVID world. I'm joined by the perfect guest to discuss that topic. Christian Stadler is Professor of Strategic Management at Warwick Business School. And Warren East is the CEO of Rolls-Royce, one of the most prestigious brands in British business. Now, firstly, hello to you both. Uh, and uh, if I can start with you, Warren, um, how is Rolls-Royce coping with the uncertainty of COVID and the impact on global supply chains? To begin with, when uh, when when COVID started uh, affecting our business, which at the time was approximately 50% uh, exposed to the world of commercial aerospace, uh, then we saw 50% of our business just disappear uh, over a period of about three weeks in, uh, in March, April uh, 2020. We had to... Uh, basically get every piece of cost we could get under control, under control, turn off our supply chain uh, into that that part of the business, um, because it was clear that whilst things would recover a little, uh, they weren't going to recover um, very much. Uh, it's a long cycle business. So as we turn the taps off on our supply chain, um, uh, unfortunately, there was a lot of inertia in that supply chain. And so money was still going out of the door. And we lost a lot of money last year, which meant we then had to respond with, with uh, you know, pretty radical actions to, um, to, to shore up our balance sheet, because um, not, not too many companies can cope with four and a half billion pounds just running out of the door, uh, which is what happened to us uh, in 2020. Since then, we've uh, we've stabilised the business, re, re done some capital raising, um, and uh, and also took on some additional debts to to give us the liquidity to basically see this through as long as it's going to last. Um, and the challenge is, of course, we don't really know how long it's going to last, and so that means give us a lot of liquidity uh, and also get our costs into a position where. Um, we we can basically sit it out, and 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 that's what we've done. Um, we took action in 2020, and during 2021, we've been following up on that. Meanwhile, the market has returned um, to an extent, and uh, activity in that part of the business is now approximately 50% uh, for where it was in 2019. Uh, and in other parts of our business, in shorter cycle parts of the business, um, we've in the last six months been seeing the supply chain challenges uh, that you referred to in the question as well. And um, you know, that's just, uh, just another challenge to deal with. And of course, the pandemic world was a new world for all of us. I mean, uh, how easy? Was it easy, firstly, to think about these changes, the strategies? What was that like? So... Um, it's it's interesting you use the word strategy there. Uh, you know, I I describe them as necessities. Um, you know, we we had to secure the survival of the business, and uh, and and that's what we did. So there wasn't really a lot of um, a, a lot of sort of very cerebral um, strategy development. But that said, um, you know, we believe uh, that the business sectors that we're exposed to are, you know, underlying growth business sectors. And, 
you know, before ever there was any COVID, uh, there's a massive change coming to those sectors in the form of an energy transition, because right now, you know, just about all of what we provide power for uh, is, uh, ha- has a large carbon footprint, and that needs to change over the next um, couple of decades, and that means we need to uh, effect some massive changes in a, in a short period of time. And so as well as dealing with the immediate crisis of COVID, now dealing with the supply chain challenge, um, we've also been putting in place uh, the building blocks to, uh, to really capitalise on that energy transition, actually, and turn it into a business opportunity. Professor Stadler, your latest book is on the subject of open strategy. Can you begin by firstly explaining what that is and how it would help companies like Rolls-Royce, for example? So in a nutshell, uh, it's quite simple. It means that you bring in people that are usually not part of the strategy making process into that process. So instead of, you know, a small selected group of executives working together on the strategy with maybe, you know, a trusty consulting firm, you would reach out to people who work more in the operational part of the business. You would bring in people maybe from other industries as well for two reasons. Number one, you get fresh ideas when you bring in people who are not sort of molded in this kind of thinking that uh, you can't escape when you work together with the same group of people over long periods of time. And uh, the second part, which I would see as the even more important one, it helps massively with the execution of a strategy. Because in the end, you know, a strategy derails not because the headline is wrong. It typically derails because there's a hundred small decisions that have to be taken throughout the entire business. And people don't necessarily understand all the bits and pieces, how it fits their particular challenge. Hence, you know, uh, you, you would bring them in. So what do you think of that, Warren? Would that work? I mean, is that something that you've had to sort of keep in mind as well, that Rolls-Royce? Yeah, and I mean, I think there's a spectrum here. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not sure there are too many businesses that, uh, that have a small group of people in an ivory tower uh, and a whiteboard uh, developing strategy these days. I mean, certainly... When we think about our um, strategies that we need to deploy to turn the energy transition into an opportunity, um, you know, we're absolutely uh, bringing in people from all over the business uh, in terms of, of, of different uh, different functions and so on. Um, obviously, that's done in conjunction with our current customer base, but it's done in, in conjunction with you know, a, a myriad of external uh, stakeholders as well, but absolutely, you know, ec- external players uh, are very much involved. You know, a lot of our strategy is about developing fast uh, new technologies to address some of the challenges, uh, and uh, that's certainly not all an internal activity. That's um, that's working w- across the ecosystem. Uh, with with players in completely different sectors, acting as a, a bit of a convener because sometimes even the whole ecosystem itself needs to then interact with the uh, with the outside world, and we need to get policy from uh, governments, not just UK government, but governments are, around the world uh, aligned with that, uh, and that means corralling a whole whole ecosystem uh, around a, a, an industrial sector to uh, to influence um, those uh, those other players. So it's very much an external activity. You know, I, li- I like the way uh, you put that, uh, Warren, that uh, you, you describe a very systemic issue, which simply as a company on your own, you can't solve it anymore. Yeah, It might have been possible in the past, but you can't. Yeah, You have yeah. to bring all 
these players in. And uh, I think that's where these opportunities to do even more of, uh, of these sort of you know, external uh, or integrated strategy approach could be highly beneficial. A nice example actually comes from the world of policy that I have come across. Um, NATO and the European Union came together, the security part of that, uh, but to say in the early days of COVID, because they were wondering, you know, what sort of security threats uh, that they would face. And they set up a strategy jam. So that's a bit like an online conference type setting where you have uh, streams of discussions and technology helps you to bring similar ideas into the same stream. It helps you to evaluate also uh, what sort of gets more weight during the discussion. I talked to the um, most senior policymaker uh, in the Pentagon who deals with NATO issues. And uh, he was saying, you know, bringing these, it was 2,800 people in their case here yeah, together in this jam allowed them to move much faster than they would usually do in the policy world, because that's often the issue. Yeah, How do you kind of find agreement across multiple governments in each of these countries you have different layers of interests and to sort of you know find common uh, denominators mm. is really difficult uh, and having everyone together he said works much better than the sort of usual way that they do things where the assumption is you know you work on something great you work with your closest allies and then afterwards you share every with everyone and they will all love it which in reality they don't yeah uh, so bring them into the conversation early uh, that's really helpful he was stressing yeah, and I, I imagine in, in a situation like that, there is a very strong, um, you know, compelling reason uh, for all those people to, uh, to get together. People could appreciate the urgency of the situation and so on. Um, of course, it's much more challenging over uh, when, when you're dealing with something uh, that, that is a much longer term thing. Uh, I mean, we need to get urgency into uh, our, the ecosystems in, in which we play to embrace the energy transition, to develop new uh, technology solutions, to develop the policies around those uh, solutions to make them economically viable and, and so on. But frankly, whether we do that today or next week or even next fourth quarter won't really make a massive difference. Um, so trying to convince people to get together next week um, is, uh, is a real challenge without that sort of urgency imperative. And it's interesting, it was illustrated at the COP26 conference where, you know, we saw um, a, a huge amount of debate around, you know, whether COP26 was a success or a failure because different governments didn't agree to objectives. And then there were some last minute changes and so on. And you know, frankly, it was interesting from an industry perspective to observe that because, you know, in our little industry sector, um, my observation would be that industry was just getting on with it. But the politicians were, you know, inevitably going to, um, they were going to have some successes and some failures because they just can't get the necessary convening together, even for something as, as important as climate change. I like your point about urgency a lot here. Yeah? Clayton Christensen, who wrote this famous book about disruption, uh, he mm. was always stressing that uh, disruption, you can frame it as an opportunity or you can frame it as a, uh, as a threat. But if you frame it as an opportunity, it's much harder to get action around it. Yeah. Yes. So, you know, just, just think about, you know, you lie on the beach, you hear some sort of appealing music somewhere down uh, on the beach. Will you go there? Maybe, but it's nice where you are as well. On the other hand, 
if you sort of, you know, in, you're in the woods, it's dark, it's scary, you hear some creaking noise behind you, you're going to run, yeah, you're going to do something uh, immediately. So it's a bit of a question of how you can get this urgency into the business world. Uh, can, can I ask how you do that actually in Rolls Royce? How can you create urgency around climate change in Rolls Royce? Well, it's very interesting. And, um, you know, we have deployed exactly the psychology uh, that, that you just described, because, you know, I, I stood up in a few a few years ago and um yeah i was actually a little bit surprised when i when i joined the company at how how little uh we, we were embracing the energy transition and i said well you know look there's 96 percent of our revenues here dependent on setting fire to fossil fuels um uh, and really by 2040 uh 2050 um you know, the world is just not going to put up with that. And so actually, we won't have a business. And in in our um, aerospace uh, sector, you know, product development cycles are of the order of 10 to 20 years. And so we're really talking about one product development cycle. And so the, the, the creaking tree in the dark forest uh, was was the message that, hey, you know, look, we, we just got one product cycle left. Uh, uh, and after that, there's no business um, if, if, uh, if we don't do the metaphorical equivalent of run uh, in your dark forest. There's a nice little tool, actually, uh, that the open strategy world uh, offers that, that could be helpful here. And I can illustrate based on an example that, that is somewhat close, I guess, uh, to, the, to the issue that, uh, that you face. The tool is a nightmare competitor tool where you create... Um, non-existent uh, threats and build business models uh, around these threats in order to kind of you know, make it more real. And mm. the example I have is uh, First Alpine, which is uh, Austria's largest steel company, where uh, they set up such a workshop where uh, they, they had the help of, uh, of a small consulting firm called IMP who helps companies to open up. And uh, what they did is they brought groups together where half of the members of the groups were from inside the company and half from outside. And each of these groups then developed these business models uh, around new ideas. They presented them. Uh, they had a voting round where they kind of, you know, weaned out the less uh, promising ones uh, next round. And one of those business models that came out of it was uh, the CO2 free uh, production of steel. Mm. which uh, there had been discussions in the management team before that. Yeah. But I think that gave it a, a last push, this particular uh, exercise. And they then decided to work together with Siemens and Verbund, which is the largest uh, electric energy uh, producer in, uh, in Austria, to set up the world's largest pilot plant uh, using some hydrogen type technology. You know, don't ask me about the details. I'm not an engineer. Mm. Uh, but uh, it was basically steel to, uh, free steel production where it's not, you know, full-scale industrial use, but the ahead of the curve. And I don't think they would have without creating these uh, nightmare competitors that gave them the sense of urgency. The two of you have talked a lot about, you know, changing approaches, presumably, because, you know, the way the world is, is changing as well. And, you know, like we've seen this new normal. How important do you think it is to become adaptable to a world where business conditions have become so volatile? Um, if I can start with you, um, Warren, then, of course, Professor, if you pick up at the back of that, because uh, open strategy clearly doesn't work in all companies. So how important is it to become uh, adaptable in a world which is so volatile? in terms of business with you? 
Yeah, uh, well, you know, obviously it's it's crucial. You know, businesses operate in the world, whatever state the world happens to be in. And, you know, we can probably all remember, or at least we can remember uh, seeing pictures and reading books about what the world used to look like in uh, in in the middle part of the last century. But but frankly, for the last sort of 20 years or more, um, certainly in the sectors that, are, that I've been in, it has been a volatile, fast-changing world, and um, you know, one of uh, one of my sort of challenges in terms of of leading people is convincing people that change is a good thing in business. It's not a bad thing, uh, and it's a good thing in business because it creates opportunities. Um, and uh, getting people to understand that is is quite important, but. Uh, for, for us, um, a, a volatile, uncertain world with with lots of different potential outcomes and uh, and ambiguity that that's been a feature of my life in the semiconductor world for years, and 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 also very much in the um, in the power sector where uh, where Rolls Royce is operating today. I think Warren uh, noted a really important point that uh, it's bringing everyone along. That is probably the biggest challenge. Um, mm. Leaders have access to lots of information these days yeah so it's probably that's the lesser of the challenges but how do you kind of you know bring everyone uh into this uh adaptation mode uh, and barclays i think offers a nice example when they moved into digital so um ashok Kwasvani, when he took over in 2012 the retail business in the uk for barclays uh he did that when he of course had a sense that you know uh, the world is going to go more digital but he also understood that in a bank which has a, a huge branch network this is going to be a challenge for many people so instead of sort of you know just declaring this is what we will do he involved people in that uh, process. Uh, he kind of had first a number of working groups who edged out broad headlines, but then in a second stage, he involved all 30,000 people against Rajam, yeah, which I mentioned earlier already, uh, in these discussions around uh, you know, how, how they should adapt, what it means for them. And uh, you know, the people I talked to, including Mr. Uh, Vaswani, uh, they all said, you know, the sort of energy they got around these new ideas was unprecedented. Uh, people understood what it means for them. And they had sometimes really um, discussions that seemed far removed from banking. Also the mortgage people were, for example, saying that we look at Domino's Pizza and Domino's Pizza can tell you when the order comes in, when they put the ingredients on the pizza, when they put the pizza in the oven, when it comes out and when they deliver it. At that time, the mortgage people could only tell you, we received the mortgage application. And in the end, they could tell you, you get a mortgage under these conditions or you don't get a mortgage. But nothing in between, which was just not up with the times. So mm -hmm. as part, being part of that you know, whole thinking through process, people could already, during the strategy making process, uh, get an idea of what it means for them, how they adjust. Yeah? And uh, it brought a lot of new initiatives straight out uh, after the jam. So first mobile app was introduced, which you know quickly get, went up to a million users. Today with 9 million users, it's uh, one of the most successful fintech products uh, in the United uh, Kingdom. There were new initiatives like the Digital Eagles. It's sort of, you know, some group of people within the firm, uh, volunteers who know digital better, help others in kind of becoming more digital. 
And you have then these funny stories where a granddad walks into a Barclays uh, branch with his new iPad and asks him how he can set up his iPad because his grandson had told him that Barclays are the people who know digital. You know, obviously they're not a computer shop, but it kind of, you know, brings, <laughs> brings it home that uh, they really made this transition. They made so because everyone had opportunities to get involved uh, in that. Uh, that, I think, is, is one of the real beauties of opening up the strategy process. Are yeah. we optimistic that, uh, you know, the, that companies are prepared to adopt the sort of strategies that will be required to cope with this new world? Uh, well, the other ones will just not be around afterwards. In that sense, we can always be optimistic. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, no, you're absolutely right, and um, and that and that's the big tool. I mean, it's it's like your dark forest. I mean, that is the tool that we as leaders use um, to uh, to encourage people that you know change is a good thing. I mean, because the opposite is a very bad thing. Right. I'd like to round up this discussion by asking you both for a couple of recommendations for further reading on this topic. So our audience get a, a chance to, you know, get into your mindsets as it were, apart from what they're going to be hearing here. So um, any recommendations, if I can start with you, Professor? Sure, a couple of books, yeah. Margaret Heffernan, Uncharted, uh, is a fantastic book, uh, which also takes uh, an approach that is very much aligned with my thinking that you can't uh, sort of plan everything uh, with an algorithm that things are much more sort of serendipitous uh, and you need to be, be flexible. Uh, the other book, Gary Hamel's Humanocracy, which stresses, uh, you know, that you need to unleash the power of your people and give them enough autonomy that they can, you know, bring up initiatives and do things. Uh, these are two books that I think you should definitely read. I know I asked a version of this question earlier, but I'm going to ask it again. Are we optimistic? Because I, you know, Things can't continuously, I mean, it's just been one of those whirlwind worlds, as it were, that we've been through recently, times. Um, are we optimistic for businesses in the future? No, I, I, I'm optimistic, yeah. I mean, the world has been superiors that were considerably darker than the, the one at the moment, yeah. You had the two world wars, uh, uh, you know, a, a, as the prime examples, but you also had, you know, things like the oil crisis. Uh, so, you know, this goes, things go in cycle. I'm sure things will look better again in future. Warren? Yeah, um, I, I'm a natural optimist. Uh, I'm a natural optimist as a technologist and an engineer that, um, you know, we will uh, be able to deploy um, technologies to, uh, to address some of the big challenges we have in the world. And I'm optimistic as a business person um, that, you know, my experience tells me that, uh, that businesses find a way to make these things happen. Well, thank you both. Um, that's all for today's episode of this podcast. Thanks to my guests, Warren East, CEO of Rolls-Royce and Professor Christian Stadler of Warwick Business School. Right, for now, everyone, take care and stay safe.